Hear the word of the Lord from Genesis chapter 15, 1 through 21. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside. And he said, look toward heaven and number the stars. If you are able to number them, then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord. And it was counted to him as righteousness. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out of the Ur of Chaldeans to give you the land, give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? And he said to him, Bring me a heifer three years old, a female goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, all, <clears throat> all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there. And they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land, from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates, and the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Kadamites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Rephium, the Amorites, the Canaanites, the Girgashites, and the Jebusites. This is the word of the Lord. Peace be with you. Good morning, everyone. Well, we have been journeying uh, through the life of Abraham in the book of Genesis, and today we've come to one of the more pivotal chapters in the Old Testament, and arguably the, in, the entire canon. Last week's chapter ended with a question concerning reward. This week's chapter opens with a promise concerning reward. The, the king of Sodom offered Abram a reward, and Abram refused. And after these things, Yahweh declares that he will be Abram's shield and his exceedingly great reward. Abram doesn't need protection and riches by the hand of earthly kings. His heavenly king has promised him both. If you remember, Yahweh's promise to Abram in Genesis 12 was, I will make of you a great nation. And I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. And to this point, by all accounts, Yahweh has kept his promise. Abram has become great in many ways. He's he's built numerous altars 
in the land, reestablishing the worship of Yahweh wherever he goes. He is a faithful priest. He's received a sevenfold blessing in Egyptian spoil, and his sheikdom of faithful worshipers of Yahweh is steadily growing. He is a brave evangelist. And in defeating Chedorlaomer, he fights for others. He puts down an evil dominion, and he rescues the people in the land. He is a good king. Yahweh has kept his promise, and Abram's influence and dominion are growing. And in making his name great, in making Abram's name great, Yahweh is blessing the land and all those who come into Abram's house and under his care. So for all intents and purposes, things are going quite well. However, Abram has an immediate problem in verse 2. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. Incidentally, this is, this is the first time that Abram is recorded as having spoken back to God. Until this point, he's been listening and obeying. Now he is interacting, which is noteworthy. So Abram has no natural heir. Sarah is barren. His nephew Lot, whom he took into his house, who really seemed to be fulfilling the role of a son, for a while, is now with the king of Sodom. And Eliezer is just a houseborn servant. And really, this is, this is a crisis for Abram at this point. Is he going to have a natural heir, or is his house just going to pass into the hands of his servant? And the Lord's response is to confirm that Eliezer will not be his heir. Rather, Abram's heir will come from his own body. Verse 4, and behold, the word of the Lord came to him, this man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. Now, this is a, a significant development because we have not heard this promise yet. It's important to notice that throughout this story of Abraham, that the promises that God makes are developing. They're taking greater shape. See, God isn't just promising to Abram the same thing over and over and over again. So far, we've seen the promise that God will make Abram a great nation, make him a blessing to the nations. We've also seen the promise that God will give Abram offspring and a land that they will possess. But really, up until this point, there's no promise that that offspring would descend biologically from Abram himself. Likewise, Abram isn't promised that his descendants will come through Sarai. She's barren, so there really is no seeming hope there. But nevertheless, God promises Abram that he will have a biological blood descendant. 
And then God takes Abram outside and tells him to number the stars. The word there is actually better translated as consider or take account of. So what is God doing here? Come and consider the stars, Abram. That's what your offspring will be like. Well, I contend that it's actually an elevation of, of a previous promise. Abram has already been told that his descendants will be numerous like the dust of the earth, and this promise just takes that a step further. Abram's offspring will be as numerous as the dust on the earth, but they will also be like the stars in heaven. And that description just, it suggests more than number. The stars in Genesis 1 are given to rule the heavens. They are authorities and powers. In other places in Scripture, they're also associated with angels. Yahweh is promising Abram that his blood offspring won't just fill the earth. They'll fill the heavens. They'll be co-ruling bodies along with God himself. They'll give a sense of order and time in God's world. They'll help rule the nations. They will shine like lights in the darkness around the sun that will drive away all darkness. They will cover the earth and be a heavenly nation, a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession. And they will proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness into his marvelous light. See, this is the promise that, that Yahweh makes to Abram. Abram asks for an heir, and Yahweh certainly promises an heir, but also something the size of the cosmos. He promises a multi-generational, intercontinental, heaven and earth covering seed of men, women, and children that will come from his body. This, this is an enormous promise that God will fulfill, not just in the life of Abram, but over multiple generations, as we read, as we read in the psalm this morning, over thousands of generations. A promise that he is still fulfilling to this day. So in a way, with this promise, we are getting a glimpse of the new heavens and the new earth here. Verse six. And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. So this, this is truly in response to this, in response to this promise. This is truly an act of faith and trust. Because Abram has no direct evidence at this point that such a promise is even possible. In fact, it would seem as though God has waited to make this promise when it is actually impossible given Sarai and Abram's age. But Abram is taking God at his word. Yahweh is promising a dead man new life through a son. Does that sound familiar? This is exactly why Paul can say in his letter to the Galatians that God preached the gospel to Abram. See, in God's kingdom, to believe the promise that he will bring new life through a son is considered by God to be true righteousness. 
to take him at his word and believe that he is a God who does what he says he will do. And this righteousness of faith, this righteousness of faith is a real kind of righteousness. Not a pretend righteousness or a placeholder righteousness. Just as Abram, who was as good as dead, received new life by believing in God's promise of a son, so too we, who were also as good as dead, receive new life by believing in God's promise of a son. Our faith is just like Abram's. Verse 7. And the Lord said to Abram, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur, the Chaldeans, to give you this land to possess. But he, Abram, said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? So in the midst of trusting God, Abram shares his doubts. The Lord of all creation has just made promises to Abram, and he says, how can I know How can I know that you will do what you promise? But notice the response of Yahweh. He doesn't say, how dare you question me? I'm I'm the Lord of all things, you little man. So, no, God responds to Abram's doubts gently because the God of the Bible is patient with doubters. And yet he doesn't let our doubts go unanswered. The Lord loves to reassure us. Consider for just a moment a few famous doubters. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is told that she will carry the Messiah, and she says, how will this be? And God sends her Elizabeth pregnant with John. Thomas, one of the 12 disciples, hears that Jesus has risen from the dead, and he says, unless I can see him and touch him, I won't believe. And a number of days later, Jesus appears and says to him, Thomas, see me, touch me, don't doubt, believe. God of the Bible welcomes our doubts, but he also doesn't let us simply acquiesce to them. He doesn't say, how dare you doubt me, but he also doesn't say, it's okay, everyone doubts me. He says, come to me with your doubts. Share them with me. We are encouraged as his children to doubt in a Godward direction to doubt unto him, to doubt toward him and not away from him. Because he does want to, he wants us to share our doubts, not just to ignore them or pretend that they're not there. I know that some of you came from backgrounds or homes where you were never allowed to doubt the Lord. Some of you haven't shared your doubts perhaps because you've just become so used to them that they just never get brought up. But to quote one theologian, churches that make it unsafe to doubt create skeptics. 
Because if any of us are unable to open up about our doubts, we never get the answers or relationships or care or attention that we naturally need, and we naturally just become skeptics of God and one another. I think even to parents, I would say, and I'm saying this to myself as well, what if we, what if we made our homes safe places for our children to doubt the things of God? To share their real doubts with us, with parishes, with friends, with one another. Because they will either learn to do it doubting with us in community, with relationships, or doubt it alone and away from people. So how does Yahweh respond to Abram's doubts? Verse 9. He said to him, bring me a heifer, three years old, a female goat, three years old, a ram, three years old, a turtle dove, and a young pigeon. And he brought him all these, cut them in half, and laid each half over against the other. But he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. So this is certainly a strange passage. What is it about these five animals that is so significant? Why divide them this particular way? What's going on? What is the Lord doing? We'll answer that next week. Let's pray. I'm kidding. <laughs> Sorry. I was kidding. I was kidding. What's the Lord doing? I want to know. According to the book of Leviticus, these, these animals are the five species of animal that will be offered in the sacrifices of Israel. So these sacrifices are, are meant to represent Israel itself, even before they're there, and various members within the household of Israel. And the way the animals have been cut in two and separate apart from one another has created this kind of aisle down the middle between the parts of the animals. And here, Yahweh appears to Abram in a visionary event. Verse 12. As the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, a dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. It's very interesting this. I mean, this entire passage is very interesting. There's not really a sense of like a timeline. Are we, is this all happening at the same time? Are there days that are passing? Is this a bunch of different conversations that are put together? There's no telling necessarily. But this deep sleep that comes upon Abram is interesting because it's not just a regular sleep. It's a, it's a death-like sleep. It's a period of death followed by a resurrection. But in the midst of this, a, a profound event is taking place. If you remember back in Genesis 2, Yahweh brought a deep sleep upon Adam in the garden. And what did he do in that deep sleep? He brought out Eve from Adam's side, from his body. 
And in this sleep that has come upon Abram and what's about to happen in this covenant, Israel is going to be taken from Abram's side, from his body, and formed into a nation. Verse 17. When the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram. Again, a strange passage. What is happening here? Well, simply put, God is cutting a covenant with Abram. He is drawing up a covenant, making a covenant with Abram. This is a covenant ceremony. There, there were no papers to sign in Abram's day. So the participants in a covenant had to act out their part in a drama. This is, this is more than just theater. This is lived reality. People who were entering an agreement with one another would cut animals in two and walk together down the aisle in between the sacrifices. And in doing so, both parties were declaring a, what's called a self-maledictory oath, saying, let my body be torn in half like these animals, and may the birds come and carry me away if I don't keep my vow to you in this covenant. Of course, this was very good accountability <laughs> to keep your end of the bargain in any covenant agreement, but you'll notice Something very important is that Abram is asleep. He doesn't walk down the aisle between the animals. He doesn't participate. The only one who does walk in between the parts is Yahweh himself. As smoke and flame, the same form, same forms that he will take when he leads Israel from the Exodus. But by walking down the aisle alone, Yahweh is swearing by the highest name in existence. He is swearing by himself, swearing by his name that he will keep the promises that he has made to Abram. And by doing so, God is saying, Abram, if I fail to do for you all that I promise to do, may I be torn to pieces. But he's also saying, Abram, if you fail in this covenant, may I also be torn to pieces. God answers Abram's doubts with this covenant ceremony. If I fail, Abram, I'll pay the penalty, but if you fail, I'll pay the penalty. Yahweh gives Abram a tangible sign that these promises made to him will be kept. Years from now, when Israel performs its sacrifices in the temple, it's really a re-performance of this ceremony and oath in Genesis 15. God's passing between the animals is something that is performed every single time Israel offers animals on the altar. It is a reapplying of the covenant, a reapplying of the promise. God's passing between these animals. But that's because Abram needed a tangible sign. And according to verses 13 through 16, 
Israel is going to need one too. I wonder if we could think for a moment what kind of particular faith it takes to keep trusting that a promise of deliverance will come after 400 years of slavery. Imagine being a man or a woman in Egypt and looking at your son or daughter and saying, God has made his promises. He will come to get us. We will not see it. You will not see it. Your children will not see it. Your children's children will not see it. For 10 generations, you will not see it. But cling to the promise that he made to Abram. His inheritance, your inheritance will come. Yahweh will hold to his word. I can't imagine what kind of faith that takes to wait. They had the promises made to Abraham <clears throat> to cling to. One day, the exodus will come. One day, it will come. But we are not so much different because in the midst of our doubt, in the midst of our waiting, we say, how do I know that God's promises are for me and that he'll do what he promises to do? God says, look at my son. My son who was cut in two on the cross. Look to my son who took the penalty for all your sin upon himself and traded to give you his righteousness. Look to him, whether you are failing or succeeding in faith and know that his promises are for you. One day he will return and the new heavens and new earth will be full of his saints. And the full inheritance that we have been promised will be delivered in full, but until that day we will live lives of hope in the one who walked the aisle for us to secure everything for us. We will hope our way through every high and low, dark and lit valley. The Lord allows for Abram's doubts and meets him there with a promise. He allows for our doubts as well and meets us in our doubt with the same promise too. He doesn't call us, sojourn, to have a naked faith that isn't built on something objective or tangible. So remember your baptism, the promises that God has made to you to keep you. Remember the body and blood of Christ. Remember God's promise to feed you and sustain you and give himself to you and nourish you. These are the tangible evidences of God's promise to you, a promise of a future inheritance. Let's pray. Holy and gracious God, Lord, we thank you for your promises and we pray that you would help us, Lord, in this to, to endure amidst doubt, amidst questions, amidst not understanding, amidst wondering and, and asking. Or would you help us to be, Lord, open and honest with where it's difficult to trust you? 
Would you help us to, Lord, to doubt toward you? Would you help us to welcome our doubts so that we might ask you again to reassure us, to show us again, Jesus, that we might be, Lord, captivated and convinced all over again and over and over again. Lord, to believe once again, I know that your promises are for your people. I know your promises are for us. Lord, would you help us? Would you sustain us? Would you feed us and teach us, shape us? We need you and we love you. And we ask all of these things in your name. Amen.